So the first thing I want to start was with a question, how much is enough? Now, when those words come out of a pastor's mouth, you either find an excuse to go to the restroom and leave, or you brace yourself because you're going, oh, this could be bad. This could be a guilt trip. This could be something to make me feel, uh. But this is not the direction I'm going with this question. When I ask the question of how much is enough, I'm talking about food. Now, that may make you even more squeamish. And you're going, oh, I don't want to talk about food unless it's what we're having right after the service. But how much food do we need to have to be healthy? How much food do we need to have to be nourished? You know, it's one of those questions that no matter where you go in history, the answer has pretty much stayed the same. You know, we've done some pretty amazing technological advances. You know, we've put a person on the moon. We put spaceships that will travel. Just this last week, we had two non-government spaceships travel up to outer space. You know, we've, we've got all sorts of technology that allows us to map the human genome. You know, we can do things that are amazing. But you know what? We still have to have a certain number of calories. We still have to have a certain amount of water. We have to breathe in oxygen. And that didn't change from the time of Adam and Eve to today. Nothing of that changes. So even though we're technologically advanced and even though we've got all these things, we still need nourishment and we need it regularly. The average adult male, doesn't matter whether they're super active or not active, needs to have a certain number of calories, somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 calories. The average adult female needs between 1,500 and 2,200. Sorry, ladies, we get to eat a little bit more. The average human needs 3.7 to 2.7 liters of water a day. And some of that we get from our food, but we need to have that much water a day. And sadly, it, it sounds like when you drink caffeine, it actually counteracts it, so it doesn't count as water. So I'm sorry to say, yep, sip your coffee, I saw that. Um, <laughs> You're going to need some water to counteract that. Not only that, but we have to breathe in 2,000 gallons of air every single day. We have to do it between 15 and 30 times a minute. We have to breathe in. And that's just to stay alive. What, is it, what do we have to do to thrive? Well, we've got to make sure it's good food, and we've got to make sure it's pure water, and we've got to make sure our, our, our oxygen that we're breathing in doesn't have pollutants in it. See, no technology, no fads, no new ideas changes that. We have to be nourished. We cannot go without it. You can't go without food for very long. You can't go without water for more than a handful of days. And you can't go without breathing for, I think the world record was 22 and a half minutes, but that was for a pearl diver, diver who was diving down for pearls under the water. The rest of us, we'd be well, well dead at that point. And what is the reason for this? Well, it's because if we don't have these base things, we die. You know, there's a word that has become a popular word in our culture, and it's been made into some great commercials, many of them starring Joe Pesci, and it's the word hangry. This is the, this is the word hungry and angry sandwiched together. And I looked up the definition because I'm just that kind of person. This is where you are so famished that you are irritable and overreact at minor annoyances. 
If you've seen the Snickers commercial, you got Joe Pesci, and he's like, oh, I hate everything. Okay, eat a bite of your Snickers, and then he takes a bite, and it's this little old guy or little old lady, and it's like normal. See, we, we, that's our bodies telling us that we need food, that we need the nourishment. And see, when we're not having that food, we lose our focus. You know what that's like. You know when you're working and you're, you're just not able to focus and you go get something to drink. You go get something to eat. You go for a walk and inhale a lot more air than you have been. And as you know it, you're ready to go. You've refocused. This is the same way when it comes to our lives with the Lord. We have constantly got to be tapping into, we've constantly got to be nourishing our souls. Otherwise, we die. We need that reviving. We need to be revived on a regular basis. It's not enough to just come to church on Sunday. Imagine if you just drank, you just ate, you just breathed on Sunday. You're not making it to the next Sunday. And yet, that's how we approach our walks with the Lord, don't we? See, to be revived, to have revival in this church, each of us must be individually revived. There was a journalist who went to try to write an article about the Welsh revival. This was a revival in Wales um, a few centuries ago, and he went to a, a local pub to say, where's the revival? And the, the guy behind the bar says, well, it's right here. It's right here in my heart. Because see, in order for us to have revival as a church, like we talked about way back when we did Psalm 80 at the beginning of the summer, we must be revived, and we need it continually. We need it all the time. When you're hangry, you're sinful, you're exhausted, you're discouraged, you're burnt out. When you're tapped into the Lord and you have that happiness, you are full of fresh energy. You're full of hope. The world looks better. Ray Ortland wrote, reviving is all about God taking sinful, exhausted, discouraged people and bringing them forgiveness, fresh energy, new hope, invigorating power, and more of himself. That's what we need. We need more of that. So how often do we need to do this? Well, the psalm says the answer to it, and it's all the time. We need it from, in the past we needed it, we need it now, and we're going to need it in the future. See, the psalm says this multiple times. It's one of those things when, when Ray read it, you know, it, it's kind of hidden in there. But there's this word, and it's the word return or returned. Now, if you, look in your, if you look at your Bible and you see in your Bible in front of you, you can look at it and go, that word's not there. That's because our English translation translates the same word five different ways. Because it's the focus of this psalm, and they want to get across, there's this return, go back, go back to where you were. It's translated as restore. It's translated as restore again. It's translated as turn us back. But this is the point of this psalm. See, you don't become a believer, you don't give your life to Christ, and then you're done. It's a continual tapping in. Look at what John 15, 5 says. This is a familiar verse. You all know it. It says, I am the vine. This is Jesus talking. He's saying, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do a lot of stuff. No, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I am not a gardener 
Um, I'm not even married to a gardener. We don't have any of that. But I know for a fact, if you go outside and you cut off that rose, yes, it'll look pretty for a little bit, but it is in the process of dying. And only when that branch is attached to the vine, which is into the root, which is into the nourishment, does that vine flourish. And that's what Christ is telling us, and that's what this psalmist is saying. We have constantly got to be tapping into the Lord. As soon as we cut ourselves off, we are in the process of dying, just like the person who says, I'm not going to eat for this week. You know, I'm not going to drink for the next five days. I'm just not going to breathe for the next 20 minutes. It's the same thing. It's cutting yourself off from life. See, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not is anyone who's given their heart to Christ, it's anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. This is the picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We are tapped into the source. We are being nourished as believers. So here's our big idea. God brought us to life, gives us life, and keeps us alive in him because he does not change. He's done it in the past. He'll do it in the present. He'll do it in the future. Why? Because he's the same. He never changes. The same God that Abraham worshiped, the same God that we worship, all the same. He does not change. I mentioned that we talked about Psalm 80. We did that at the beginning of the summer. And we talked about the Great Awakening, we talked about revival, and talked about how we pray for revival. And as a part of praying for revival in our church and in our community, we had to get our hearts right as a community and change that. Today, we're going to even focus, we're going to dig even deeper into the, we've got to let our hearts be be prepared to be changed, because ultimately, that's where our life comes from. So let's look at that. The psalmist brings this out in the first eight verses. Verse one, Lord, you were favorable to, actually, here's the, here's the first point. You can put it up there, Kai. The past. So we remember what God has done. And I'll, these will be up there a couple times, so I know some of you are writing them down. But we're gonna remember what God has done. If you notice, this first section, verses one, two, and three, are all past tense. They're all, this is what God has already done. This is not reminding God. It's not saying, hey, God, you you promised, do this. Instead, this is saying, hey, we've seen what God's done. Guys, this is the same God today. So here we go. Psalm 85, verse 1. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restore the fortunes of Jacob. Verse 2. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. Verse 3, you withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So we, we, we say we are going to remember what God has done. The past, we're going to look at it. We're going to go, what has God done? And if you look at that, there's a lot of amazing things that this psalmist lists out. He lists out four separate things that God has done. And they're all involving forgiveness. They're all involving God fixing us. Verse 1, the Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. This word Lord is that word Yahweh. Usually it's in all caps in your Bible. This is God's proper name. So this is calling him by name. This is saying we have a relationship with him. You, God, were favorable to your land. Favorable means pleased with or to take pleasure in. 
Do you think about that? That when, when we are tapped into God, he actually gets pleasure from the fact that we are his? It's not like, oh man, I got those guys again. It's I take pleasure in the fact that they're mine. And then this idea of restored means that return word. So that's the first version of that word, return. See, the Bible says restoration is always possible. My wife and I, we like to watch restoration shows. Um, And and it's always having to imagine what everything looks like. And they've got these computer simulations that show you exactly what everything looks like. But the people there don't have that. They have to imagine that. In the Bible, it's very clear. It says restoration is possible. But there's one thing that must happen from our side, and that is we must repent. To repent means to turn and go another direction. Look at what Deuteronomy 30 says. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, this is God talking, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children. Obey his voice in all that I command you today and all your heart, and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples. So you notice there's that word then in there. He says, once you return, then I restore. There's a response to our repentance. See, when God restores Jacob's fortune, when God says, Jacob, I'm giving it back to you, what I took away so that you would repent, The fact he's giving it back is saying, I accept your repentance. See, the Bible's all about repentance because God does not move. We find other things to chase after. And so we are to return to God. And this repentance is what we see in the book of Acts. And this is probably the most clear picture of it. It's from Acts 3.19. It says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that your sins will be cleansed from God's book. And times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. See, that's the promise, is when we repent and we turn from the sins that we want to go after and we turn to God, not only are those sins removed from us, but he promises refreshing. Is that not the picture that we see when you go from hangry to happy? When you go from, I'm in my sin and I, this is de- just controlling everything and now I have that refreshing. You've all been there. You're outside. You're working in the yard. You go inside. You get the cool drink of some liquid. Water is best, but whatever you're drinking, that cool, crisp, refreshing, that's the picture of what it means to repent is God promises us that. Verse 2 You, God, forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin, Selah. That word forgave means to carry away. So a literal translation, you carried away their iniquity. You took it away. This iniquity means to be bent in on itself. See, there's two words here that he uses. The sin is, God, I'm not going to follow what you said. The iniquity is inwardly focused, so inwardly focused that you can't do any good for anybody. And see, these two sins go together. And notice, they're taken away and they're covered. They're gone. Your sins are gone when you return to Christ. Verse 3, you withdrew all your wrath. This word is weird. It it, it means to gather in, but it's the picture of gathering in so I can take it away. 
You turned from your hot anger. This word for anger is is a word that is used earlier in Deuteronomy when God says, I get angry when you worship something other than me. See, God knows that if we're in so internally focused we can't see him or if we're worshiping some other idol we can't see him that's us starving ourselves that's us not breathing that's us choosing death over life there are four powerful verbs in verses two and three forgave covered withdrew turned these are all powerful this is what god is doing with our sin This is what God is doing with our iniquity, our selfishness. Everything that we have done to earn his wrath, he is now turning away. He is pushing away. We can see this really clearly in Psalm 32. i got to read it. It's just too good. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man or woman against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, the first thing he does is he confesses, and then he turns back to the Lord. That's the picture of repentance. And then look at its joy. There's joy that comes from that. Again, it's that refreshing. It's I am right with my Creator. There is nothing between me and Him except for love and the joy that comes from that. Next point we see is the present. So the first three verses are all about here's what God has done in the past. Now the psalmist is going to ask some questions because right now it feels like there's a wedge between him and God. And so he's going to say, Do it again, God. Do the same thing. Do the work that needs to be done. Verse 4, restore us again. That's that return word again. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? There's that return word. Return again. That your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So he is in a spot where he's going, we need it again. We need this return. We need to tap back in. We need to feast. We need to eat. We need to breathe again. And Lord, do it in us. So verse 4, it says, restore us. This means to return us. Notice it doesn't say, God, could you help me return myself? It's not, hey, God, could you come in and give me a you know, pep talk and then I'll return? No, it says, God, restore us. It's God, turn me, grab me, take me the right direction. See, God, again, doesn't change where he is. It's us that is going the wrong way. And so the psalmist is not pleading with the people. He's talking to God, and he says, God, turn me to you. Bring me back to you. See, God is willing. It's us that's the problem. We want to go anywhere but to him. 
O God of our salvation. That word salvation is interesting. I did a little bit of a study on it. Not only does it mean to be saved, but along with that, it's saved with joy. There's a joy component to the Hebrew word there. And what it means is you are saved and you're enjoying it. Are you enjoying your salvation? Are you rejoicing in it? Or is it more, eh, I guess I did it a long time ago. Or are you enjoying it? It's like eating that nice cheeseburger when you're starving and it just is perfect. It's got all the trimmings. There is joy there. That's the picture of what it looks like. When you haven't eaten for weeks and you go, I'm going to have a hamburger, that joy is the joy of the salvation that we see here. Insert whatever food makes your day, okay? doesn't have to be hamburgers, but for me it is. So turn us back. Return us to you, Lord. Verse 5, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? This, again, revive means to be brought back to life, tapping into life. There is rejoicing and reviving. And the opposite is true. When there's no reviving, there's no rejoicing. I love this word. It says, will you prolong your anger to us, to all generations? That word, the second word for angry is the word nostrils. So actually a literal translation is, will you prolong your nostrils to all generations? I think that translation could get some traction, especially with my junior hires. But see, the thing about it is, is this is, you're so mad that your nose is flaring. And so what he's saying is, God, I'm feeling anger from you. I need you to come in and do what you did before. Restore me. Turn me. Revive me. Turn your wrath from me. If you know Christ, you've been brought back to this life. You've been made alive the first time. And it was God that did it. And it's God that needs to do it now. See, it's interesting. You know, God is all-powerful, but he allows us to respond to him. But the thing is, we don't, do we? When we think about, back about our first turning to God, it wasn't us going, I think I'll try out this God thing. No, it looks pretty good, I'll go. No, there's a turn. God grabs a hold of your heart and turns you. And why is that? Well, the Bible gives us an answer. Romans 3 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. Even the people that say they're spiritual, they're not, they don't want the God of the Bible. They want a God of their own making. Not only that, but the Bible says, not only are we sometimes deaf when God calls, but we are dead. Look at what Ephesians 1 says. They were dead, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. See, the picture of becoming a follower of Christ is going from death to life. We are surrounded by people that are dead men and dead women walking. They just don't know it. And so, you all know it. You all know what it means to tap into Christ and have that life. So why aren't we doing it daily? Why aren't we? Why aren't we doing it more and more and more? See, I love this. I got Ephesians 2. Whenever I get to Ephesians 2, I just, I have to go to Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. This is amazing. So we're going to read it here. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us. When we were dead in our trespasses, in our sins, he made us alive together by Christ, for it is by grace you are saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that anyone can boast. See, the way God gets a hold of us is not, here's all the things we do so we're this much closer. And he goes, I'll take that one. No, he comes down and says, there is nothing of value in anything that you do. I'm going to grab you and I'm going to bring you to life. That's the picture of what he did when we started out in him. And it's the continuous picture of what he wants to do in us right now. He wants to revive us daily, hourly, by the minute. He's waiting. He's ready. He's all-powerful. So why aren't we doing it? Verse 7, we continue to see his prayer. Lord, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. This word show means to understand, and to grant means to hand over this steadfast love. We talked about this a few months ago. It's the word hesed. It's a special Hebrew word that in order to translate it in English, we've got to write a whole sentence, maybe a paragraph to translate it. Steadfast love is not a bad translation. But to get it, it, it needs to be more unfailing, unending, loyal, immovable, God-sized, loving in spite of, not because of, love that will not end. This love cannot be bought, it cannot be purchased, it cannot be earned, it cannot be paid back. This is the definition of the steadfast love of God. It's love that is so deep we can't exhaust the bottom of it. What's ironic is our world is all about love. Our world is desperately wanting that kind of love, but they're looking in the wrong place. They're looking horizontally for some person that will affirm them, some person that will pat them on the back and say you're okay, instead of looking vertically to the God whose love is bottomless. That's the picture of this steadfast love. So when he says, show us your steadfast love, this is not a, okay, I love you, all right, we're good, let's move on. No, this is, I need to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into this because it is unfathomable how much God loves us. Not because we're special, but because he is. And this is the God of Abraham. And this is the God of right now. And this is the God for all of eternity. He will not change. Next we see the, the future Verse 8, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back in folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. The glory may dwell in your land. So now we look to the future. See, the tenses change again. So we had the, here's what he did, here's what's happening now, and then I will, the Lord will speak. This is all future tense. He says he will speak to his people, to his saints. The saints just simply mean those who are faithful to him. God promises peace and salvation to those who will listen to him. You see the trust here in verses 8 and 9? Verse 8, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. So there's trust. He will speak. For he will speak peace. There we go. There's more trust. He's going to do it. And then in verse 9, his salvation is near. The glory may dwell in the land, will dwell in the land. He will provide what's good. See, this is a God-sized view of God. 
The psalmist is going, I know he's going to take care of it because he already has and he doesn't change. That word peace, again, another word that's been well used in the history of our country. This word just simply doesn't mean the absence of war. It means contentment. It's the putting your feet up and having that cold drink of water in the Lord. It's the relaxing. It's the contentment of being right with God. Verse 8 says, but do not let them turn back to folly. It's that same word, return, but now it's don't turn back to the folly. That word folly, you know, is, is an interesting word. We don't use it very much. It means foolishness. It means unwise. But the actual root word is confidence and literally self-confidence. So notice what he's saying here is don't let me turn back to myself. Remember what we saw when we saw iniquity earlier? It's that inward bent. He's saying, and don't let us turn back to ourselves. Don't let us turn back in on ourselves. See, our confidence, our folly, says that a situation is hopeless. But the God of the Bible has a different assessment. If we're tapped into God, there is no hopelessness. We need to see God on a scale big enough for God to be honored. When believers do this, we can face any circumstances. Pastor Matt Mason wrote this, and again, it's just too good. I gotta, I gotta read it. He says, Christian friends, if you don't pray for things that might set us up for disappointment, you're doing it wrong. We're not called to pray for merely safe, self-protecting, realistic, face-saving prayers. So often I pray prayers that match the normal patterns I see in my life. In my everyday life, hard-to-reach people continue to be hard-to-reach. In my everyday life, the church exerts little influence on our community. But on page after page of Scripture, God is seeking to convince us that He has all the options on the table. He intervenes. He brings life where there's death. He brings beauty from ashes. He removes fear while we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He can cause His Word to not return void. He can bring reviving grace to any person you know, any resistant people group. He could do it by the end of the week. See, that's the picture of the God that we see in this verse 8 and verse 9. It's not a God of, well, I hope it turns out okay. It's, no, take it to God. Bother Him. Take it to Him and ask Him to move. Verse 9 encourages us by saying, surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. That glory may dwell in our land. See, the folly in verse 8 and the fear are the exact opposites. The folly is, I'm autonomous and I control everything. The fear is, I got nothing. I can't control anything. It is in God's hands. This is the picture of what we need. The fear of, the God, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1.7. It's the opposite. In Proverbs, it's represented by woman folly in Proverbs 9. It's this idea of the world's way of viewing it versus God's way of viewing it. Folly is tempting. Folly is what our community, our television, our movies, our music, our radio, everything is saying, do it your way, have it your way, do it the way you want, you do you. It's all about that. And the Bible says that's folly because true knowledge comes from fearing God. And the fear of God is, I'm not God, He is, I better get to worship Him. The deepest longing of the psalmist's heart is for God to manifest Himself more clearly. 
That's what we need. We need to be revived by this God that we say we believe in, that we, we believe we had an encounter with at some point in our lives, that it's wanting to encounter us today, right here and right now. Will we tap back in? So lastly, we're going to see that we see true confidence. This true confidence is that we know for sure because God never changes. We know we can be brought back to life because the God that brought us to life is the same God today, yesterday, and forever. See, look at this picture of what the psalmist puts out here in, in verses 10 through 13. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. See, this, this is the picture of the God that is going to come in and revive every single one of us. And we know it's true. Yes, this psalm was written about 600 B.C., which by my math is about 2,600 years ago. Yes, that was a long time ago, but it's the same God today. So I want to teach you guys a big theology word, and it's the word immutability. Can you guys all say that with me? One, two, three. Immutability. This is a key word. What this word is saying is that God's character is eternally constant. You will never go anywhere in time where God is better than he is right now. God will never be worse than he is right now. He will never be better. He will never change. He is the same always. And that's the God that we can tap into, that will revive us. He will be the same forever. He is in perfect harmony with himself, with what the Bible says about him, and his expression of himself to us. He does not change. We see this in that steadfast before the word love for when we, can, when we define hesed. It does not change. It's rock solid. It's even solider than rock. Look at what the, there, there's so many verses about this. I chose my favorites. Malachi 3.6, for I the Lord do not change. Therefore, you, O Israel, you, O children of Jacob, will not be consumed. He says, I don't change. I'm always the same. Numbers 23 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, will he not do it? Or has he spoken and it will not fulfill it? It's not just Old Testament, New Testament. We just did James a little while ago. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Meaning, he doesn't change. Not only does God not change, but Jesus doesn't change. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. The food is Christ. The food is God. Tap into that. Feast on the Lord every single day. Verse 10, the steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. There's four qualities listed here. We've got steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. These are the attributes of God. They are in abundance in God. It's not like us where it's like, well, you're a nice person and you're pretty smart. He's 
completely smart, completely nice, completely faithful. He's 100% of everything. The attributes have all leveled up to the top level. He's got them all. Steadfast love is the loyalty of the love that he displays to his people. Faithfulness is the fact that he will be true, not only to truth, but to himself. He will never change. Righteousness means accurate. He will always be the same. He will act in accord with his nature. And then peace is the result of these three. The righteousness, the faithfulness, the love, all work together and there is peace. It is the promise that he gives us. It says, these two will meet and then they will kiss and each other. It's kind of a weird way of putting this, but this is the long embrace. This is the embrace after a long lost, a long period away. It's when you haven't seen someone for years and you run up and hug them. You give them kisses. You can't wait to tell them how much you've missed them. There's a reunion. There's a unity. There's an intimacy there. This steadfast love and faithfulness would have jogged the memory of the the original hearers. They would have remembered Exodus 34, which says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. This is, Exodus 34 is this psalm. uh, This psalm just takes it and puts it to music. The steadfast love and faithfulness meet. They're in harmony. They, the righteousness and peace, they kiss. There's intimacy. But how can this be? How can God love and yet be righteous at the same time? This is the great problem we have. There can be no peace between us and God as long as we have sin, as long as we have unrighteousness. He can love us all he wants, but the righteousness says it must be punished. If you remember, there's a book in the Bible called Hosea. And in Hosea, Hosea is told to go love his wife and to take his wife back. The problem is his wife is a prostitute. And she's been doing what prostitutes do. And so Hosea says, come, God says, bring her back and love her and take her back. There's nothing about her repenting or turning. There's nothing about her being judged or punished for her sins. He takes her back. Why? Because he loves her. Many of the rabbis who taught the book of, uh, book of Hosea before Christ kind of said, eh, this is just kind of a, a fun mythic story. It doesn't work with what we believe about God, which is God will punish sin. See, they had no idea that Christ was coming. They had no idea of seeing Hosea through the Christ picture. The picture is this. We have done everything we can to break relationship with God, and he has done everything he can to fix that. And he's done that not only just through loving us and saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, but he sent Christ to take the punishment that we deserve. That's the gospel. And we see it right here. When Christ died on the cross. We see love and holiness unified. See, what happens is, is, is we like to have one or the other, right? If we just love everybody and we don't speak on holiness, it becomes sentiment. If we speak on holiness and no love, it becomes Pharisaism. We have to have both together. And in Christ, Colossians 1.20, Christ reconciles them together. There's, there's a sandwich of sorts here. The top and the bottom of the sandwich are love and peace. In the middle, we've got that faithfulness and righteousness, and they must all be together, harmonizing together. 
Ultimately, this kiss took place on the cross of Calvary through the blood of the Lamb. God is at harmony with His people because Christ has come near. And redeemed humanity can now have righteousness because of faith. We see it all come together. Verse 11, faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. See, God's faithfulness is like a, a, a produce coming up out of the ground. So we have a hard time with this because we just go to Safeway or Fred Meyers or Whole Foods or wherever you Costco, and there's just all the fruit and all the food you could want. That's very foreign in our world. A bountiful harvest would have been in their eyes a miracle because they would have looked at the ground for weeks, for months, and things would have sprouted and they're like, it may be a good harvest, it may not. And then a big bountiful harvest, they would say, this is from the Lord. We say this is from Costco. Righteousness, the third divine attribute. Notice it says it comes down from the sky. And so we see up from the ground and down from the sky. Now there's two ways to look at this. One is that God's righteousness and faithfulness extends everywhere because the sky and the ground, that covers all of it. Or it could be that the faithfulness is what we send up to the Lord and His righteousness is what He sends down. I don't think we got to be dogmatic either way. Either way, He is full of righteousness. He is full of faith. Verse 12, Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. He promises good. Remember Psalm 84, He will not withhold any good thing from those who love Him. The Lord will give what is good. Verse 13, Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Whenever God's presence is manifested in the restoring of his people, righteousness is seen. So the end result, the fruit that we get from being the branch that's tapped into the vine is we begin exemplifying righteousness. I love this. Righteousness will go before him and make a way. We see this in the work of Christ as a, as a picture, as a model to follow. See, Jesus was the one who was totally vived, right? We need revive because we are not alive. He was alive. He didn't need no re. He's the vive. He is tapped in to God fully. That's the picture of what we need to do. We need to follow in his footsteps and be tapped into God every single day. So in conclusion, God is dependable. Our trust in Him is therefore a confident trust. For we know He will not, indeed He cannot change. His purposes are unfailing, His promises unsaleable, unassailable. It is because the God who promised us eternal life is immutable that we are assured that nothing, yes, nothing will separate us from God. Not trouble, not hardship, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not danger, not sword will separate us. Why? Because Jesus, just like God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you know what that means? Neither angels, nor demons, neither present, nor future, neither powers, height, depth, nor anything in creation will separate us from God. This means we can turn to him again and again and again. He brought us life. He keeps us alive. He will keep us alive. His promises are there. All we need to do is ask. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time that we get to be reminded of something that we, if we, 
we really were honest with ourselves, we know is true that we need more of you. We need to tap in to the life, the abundant life that you have for us. So I pray that we would do that, Lord, that I, I pray that however that's going to look for each and every one of us this week, whether it be more Bible time, whether it means more time of just worshiping through nature, through song, through silence, whatever that may be, Lord, however it's going to apply to each of us, I pray that you would do a work. Revive us, Lord. Help us to feast, Lord. We are famished. We are starving. Help us to be nourished by you, by your word, by fellowship with your fellow faithful saints. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be people that are truly alive and help us to be able to follow in your son's path of that true and real life. Lord, we look forward to what you're going to do. In your name, amen.